0: And this evening we are going to begin a new series in Jeremiah. I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. Uh, those of you that are familiar with my preaching know that at the beginning of a series, we do what's called a book sermon. And within the book sermon, I take a, a survey approach to the entire book of whatever book it is that we are walking through in order that we can get a big picture understanding of everything that the book is saying, of uh, the general themes that we find throughout, and those themes kind of bubble to the surface as we walk chapter by chapter. And then we have some, some larger or um, some grand applications that we draw at the end before we really get into the nitty gritty. Now, the nitty gritty is going to take us some time. There are 52 chapters in the book of Jeremiah, um, and it's very unlikely I'm going to be getting to a chapter a week, right? And there's 52 weeks in a year. So most likely we will be in Jeremiah for uh, better than a year, um, maybe a year and a half or so. Things will get a little bit faster as we get toward the end, as there are the nine or so chapters that will. be probably combined into just a couple of sermons due to the nature of the content here uh, toward toward the end of the book. But that being said, uh, there's going to be quite a few sermons and we're going to dig down and start looking through the forest. What we don't want to do is lose the forest for the trees. We don't want to be looking so closely at each individual tree that we forget that we're in a forest and we forget where we are in relation to other things. And that's what the book sermon is intended to do. It's intended to give us that broad helicopter view, the broad perspective before we start digging down. That being said, at the beginning of each book, I do give you an outline that I've created myself as I've walked through in some of my study for the book. And that outline is on the back. We don't have the normal back table anymore. We uh, shifted that. But just underneath the missionary letters, there's a little table where we've put some of those things. And one of the things back there is a outline. So if you'd like an outline for the book of Jeremiah, uh, it is there. And Lord willing, if, if indeed I, I am around long enough to get through the entire Bible, uh, then the church will have an entire set of outlines that I've created for each of the 66 books. Of course, you could just buy a commentary and you'd have them there. Um, but um, this might give another perspective. So we thank the Lord for the opportunity that we have uh, to study on our own and to learn and to bring our, uh, our studies to bear. Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a man of great passion. He's a man of, of a tremendous feeling. Of any of the prophets that we read about in the Old Testament, most likely I would say Jeremiah is the one where we get the deepest look into his emotional state throughout the, the, the span of his prophetic Ministry, which spans somewhere near 50 full years. Jeremiah was a man uh, who goes on uh, what, what I can only describe as an emotional roller coaster. Now, that being said, uh, we see snippets of him over the course of those 50 years, so we're not seeing him necessarily go up and down over the course of days or months, right? But we are seeing a man of tremendous passion. And that passion comes across in the pages of the prophecies which he gives. He's a man that was chosen for a particular time in a very difficult time in Israel's history. And that's going to bubble up, not just this week as we walk through the book sermon, because we have to be quite brisk, especially with Jeremiah, because it's a big book. But it's going to become ever more apparent, even as we get started next week, digging into the chapter itself, chapter 1, verse 1 and following. As we dig in, we're going to find that what he was called to do, was unique, perhaps not the most difficult of prophetic ministries. I might leave that to Ezekiel, but certainly uh, quite unique and one of of a tremendous trial for him. The Lord asked much of him. We find the specific timetable for Jeremiah's ministry in the first three verses of the text. The Bible says, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, Unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Now, again, we'll talk about this in more detail next week, but our timetable begins in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, king of Judah. And on that back table, the outline also has a little final days of Judah ma- uh, uh, timeline for you, if you'd like to, to take a look at that at some point. And it ends effectively with the end of the reign of Zedekiah, his 11th year, which is the year that they were finally taken into the final captivity in 586 B.C. Jeremiah's ministry actually does span beyond that. We'll study a little bit beyond that, probably five or six years beyond that, in fact, um, as we understand a little bit of, of cleanup work after Jerusalem was taken captive and the temple was destroyed. There are technically three other kings between Josiah and Zedekiah in the final days of the nation. I give you a brief timeline here: the days of Josiah, beginning in 640 BC to 609 BC. Remember, when we're talking BC, uh, we're we're counting up, right? Instead of uh, counting down, instead of counting up. So now each year on our um, calendar, we get a little bit higher, right? We go from 2018 to 2019 to 2020. Well, that's because we're in AD, Anno Domini, meaning in the year of our Lord. When that gets down to zero, we begin counting up, right, in the B.C., the before Christ era, and that would be 640 years then before zero is when Josiah began to reign, and he reigned for 31 years to 609 B.C. Then we had a man named Jehoahaz or Shalom, then Jehoiakim or Eliakim, and then Jehoiachin, Coniah, Jeconiah, all names for the same man, and then finally there, that final king, Zedekiah, Now, Josiah was, in fact, a good king. The Bible says, well-beloved of the Lord. For the next 18 years, Jeremiah would prophesy during the reign of this good king, Josiah, and warn the people of impending doom Because though the king loved the Lord, the people had wandered far from him. In fact, the people had begun far from him, and Josiah was simply never able to reform them. We'll talk more about that next week. Josiah would be, in fact, the only righteous king under whom Jeremiah would prophesy. Josiah's son was a man named Shalom, or Jehoahaz. He reigned only three months before he was removed by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt under whom Judah served, and Eliakim was placed in his place and then given the new name by the, by the Pharaoh, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim reigned for 11 years, doing great evil in the sight of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar would eventually take him captive, carry him into Babylon. He would live out the rest of his days there. In his stead reigned Jehoiachin who began at only eight years old to reign, very similar to Josiah. He would reign only three months and ten days, also doing great evil in the sight of the Lord as an eight-year-old boy. Nebuchadnezzar would then make his brother Zedekiah king at age 21, and Zedekiah would reign as an evil king for 11 years, disregarding Josiah or J- Jeremiah, disregarding the word of the Lord, until such time as they were taken into the final captivity, the... Uh, the the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. Now, this was the environment within which Jeremiah prophesied. The text is broken up into many individual messages, each, excuse me, with a specific audience from the Lord. Some of these are given timetables. Others of these are not. They all are prophecies of judgment with, of course, the notable understanding that judgment always gives way to mercy. This is what we see in prophecy. And I want you to look for it. When you're reading prophecy and you see prophecies of judgment, always look for the mercy within the judgment. Because somewhere along the line, when judgment has been proclaimed, there's mercy somewhere in there. Look for it, because it's always there. I've not found one yet. So the text is broken up into these individual messages. And this idea of mercy, restoration, will become an important theme within the book. It's within this theme that we understand some very important elements of the character of God. Now, as we walk through the book, take care also to note the condition of the prophet. I've mentioned already his emotional state. He was a man of extraordinary feeling, Jeremiah. And as we journey through this book, we are going to see those emotions. He's going to kind of write them right into the narratives of his book. He'll have very high highs and have very low lows. He's going to be happy. He's going to be angry. He's going to be sorrowful. He's going to be fearful. And the Holy Spirit of God has given us the privilege of looking into that. The text begins with Jeremiah's call in verses 5 through 7. Jeremiah was reluctant due to his feelings of incapacity. But God promises this to Jeremiah, that if Jeremiah would obey the Lord, the Lord will take care of the rest. So it is that Jeremiah responds to the call of God, and he relies upon God's provision. The first message takes place in the days of Josiah, a good king in Israel. They are messages which highlight the hypocrisy of the land. God begins almost gently with the nation of Israel pleading with the nation that they would return to the love which they once held for God. And in this plea comes a strong, even a startling level of mercy that God promises if the nation would but listen and repent. Consider the words of the Lord to the nation in chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord says, They say if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, "'Shall he return unto her again? "'Shall not the land be greatly polluted? "'But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, "'yet return again to me, saith the Lord.'" God cites a concept familiar in the Old Testament law. Again, we'll dig in more when we get to this passage. That the man who puts away his wife cannot return unto her and marry her again. This is established in Deuteronomy chapter 24, stating that such is an abomination unto the Lord. Yet as God regularly uses this analogy of marriage in order to uh, symbolize his relationship between himself and Israel, he says that he would gladly take them back though they have wandered away from him if they would but do so. God tells them in the days of Josiah that the treachery of the nation of Judah had been worse than the backsliding of the nation of Israel, a nation which had been taken into captivity some 100 years before that statement in the, in, in 722 B.C. To this end, God is seeking to stir up the nation, to cause them to understand the deep necessity of repentance, even in those days when a good king was on the throne and the nation operated at least to some degree within a level of morality. But morality is not enough, is it? Morality has never been enough. It's not enough to just be a moral person by some standard. God doesn't want lip service. God isn't interested in outward expressions, God, except to the degree that they are an outward expression of something that's already inside. God wants your heart. God wanted Israel's heart. God was calling them back. And this gives way to the first true declarations of judgment. Remember, as we walk through the book, that much time is passing here. The first true declarations of judgment that were not at all gentle... In chapter 4, the Bible says this in chapter 4, verse 7. The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy cities shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. God is merciful, but God is also just, and his justice will prevail among those particularly who reject his mercy. This declaration was one that was very difficult for Jeremiah to give. Immediately after these words, we find a lamentation of Jeremiah for the city and a plea to his people. Jeremiah determines that he will go to what we might call the movers and shakers of the land. He's determined that he would go to the leaders of the land and he tells the Lord, I'm going to go talk to them. I'm going to go talk to the leaders and I'm going to tell them what you have to say. And he almost sounds optimistic that he's going to go to the leaders of the land and he's going to tell them that this is what God has said and they're going to listen and then things are going to change. He has this optimism and this zeal about him. Surely they will listen. Well, God replies back that the nation has been so evil, they are so evil, they will not repent. Their judgment is self-imposed. Their doom is established by their ignorant self-righteousness. They have eyes, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. And that God's mercy will not last forever. God is exhorting Jeremiah to go and to tell and to do his thing. But to understand that time is short. Judgment is coming and it will come from the north. The north would be the route where Babylon would come from. Babylon, no, no one would cross the Arabian desert. Uh, that's just not how you would send a military uh, army. You would send them up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers all along the way through what's called the Fertile Crescent, and then they'd come down through what's effectively Syria into Israel on that way. So when God says that the enemy is coming from the north, that judgment is coming from the north, and we'll see as we continue through the book that it will be made very clear that, that Chaldea, Babylon, is... The nation through whom this judgment will come. Our next message takes us to the gates of the temple. The gates of the Lord's house. Jeremiah is told to go to the gates of the Lord's house and to proclaim the word of the Lord there. The city was putting their misguided faith in the temple. They believed that because the temple existed, as in the days of Hezekiah, when the Assyrians came up against the nation and Hezekiah was told that the Lord would not allow his city and his temple to be destroyed. Now the people said, well, if God won't allow his city and his temple to be destroyed, then we can do whatever we want, I guess, because this is God's temple. God's not going to allow his temple to be destroyed. That means we have this little protective radius around us where we can do whatever we want and we can manipulate God into not destroying us by virtue of the fact that his temple is built here. And God sends a message for Jeremiah to proclaim at the gates of the Lord's house. You can imagine how popular that was. That says this. That says that Jerusalem's peace would end that says the city would be overthrown and the very temple within which they were coming out and going would be destroyed. Now last we left Jeremiah, his emotional state was burdened. He was eager to tell the the leaders of the land. He was burdened for them. Through this he was convinced that they would hear judgment and that judgment would be averted. Well, we revisit Jeremiah in chapter 8. And his emotions are different now. We read in chapter 8, verse 18, When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. We read in chapter 9, verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters, that mine eyes and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah is now, and he's been called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah is now weeping For his people, he is weeping for those who will not hear and for the judgment of God upon the nation because they will not hear. Jeremiah's heart is aching now for his people. Oh, that they would listen and learn and obey and be saved. God replies to Jeremiah, stating again the surety of judgment for sin, but calling all men to know him and promising that all who would seek him would find him. And all those that pursue the knowledge of God will find blessing. So God says this in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercised loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight saith the Lord, there is no glory just in a temple made of stone. There is no glory in any individual human accomplishment. There is no glory in any singular institution except to the extent that any of these things and anything on this earth reflects the knowledge of God, reflects His character, reflects His attribute. If you're going to glory in anything, let it be that you glory in this, that you understand the Lord, that you know the Lord, that you obey the Lord, that you have desired the Lord and the Lord has made Himself known to you. That is our glory. If we have anything to glory, it can only be this. The praises unto God continue in chapter 10, where Jeremiah vindicates the righteousness and the holiness of God. He then proceeds to lament for the nation in sorrow yet again, particularly for their leaders, for their shepherds, for their pastors, he calls them. Their pastors, the priests, and the prophets, he begins to lament, for these have all gone astray. These have all led the nation astray. They've led the nation into a self-deception that made the nation feel secure in the days when they should have had absolutely no security at all. That made the nation feel as though they were going to be okay in times where the Lord was telling them they were going to be destroyed. We transition back to the words of judgment in chapter 11. God focuses this time specifically upon the covenant between Himself and the nation of Israel made at Sinai. That they have forsaken that covenant, that they have walked every man in the desires of his own heart rather than fearing the Lord. For this God warns them, he gives them warnings of judgment against their shame for their evil through which they have provoked God to anger. And this pronouncement introduces for us a new emotion in Jeremiah's catalog of emotions that he records. In chapter 1, he was unsure. Not sure if he could do this ministry. Then he became zealous to speak, right, uh, uh, toward the, the leaders of the nation. Then he became nearly inconsolable in his sorrow for the nation and lamentations for them. And then we find Jeremiah indignant, angry at the people who are ignoring the Lord and as, at the same time abusing him. So in chapter 12, we read this. In verse 1, Jeremiah writes, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Then he he says this in verse 11. They have made it desolate, and being desolate, it mourneth unto me. The whole land is made desolate, because no man layeth it to heart. Jeremiah at this point is angry, at the sin of the people. He's angry that they have not listened. He's angry that they have not heeded. And he's a little bit angry that in doing so they have caused him to suffer because he will suffer. And so he says, Lord, avenge me. Lord, avenge you yourself. He calls for this vengeance. And indeed, the chapter ends with God promising the judgment that Jeremiah pleads for, but also reminds Jeremiah of his mercy. Notice what he says in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 12. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, the Lord liveth as they taught my people to swear by Baal. Then shall they be built in the midst of my people. But if they will not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, saith the Lord. In chapter 13, Jeremiah gives a sign to the nation. Jeremiah does not give nearly as many signs as some of the other prophets. Think particularly of Ezekiel. And uh, Ezekiel was one sign after another sign. Some of those signs very difficult. He had to lay on his side for uh, any number of days and then on his other side in the hot sun. He had to build little dioramas and then kick him over. He had to do all of these things. One of the things he had to do was not mourn when the Lord took his wife. Some difficult signs. The Lord used signs in a very mighty way through Ezekiel. Jeremiah does not have as many signs, but we see a sign that the Lord gives in chapter 13. A sign to the nation revealing God's love and desire toward them, but again highlighting the need for judgment. And this gives way to a new message found during a time of drought in the land, when the nation was suffering for an, extre- uh, an extreme lack of water, a drought, right? And this was always startling in Israel as the nation that was the nation covenanted to God because God had promised that such things would not happen in the nation if they were following Him, right? God promised in the law that if they followed Him that there would be no barren women, that there would be no droughts, that there would be no pestilence, that there would be no plague, that there would be none of these things. And so when a drought comes, there's something deeply wrong. It is a reflection without question of the nation's sin and rebellion against God. And this circumstance begins a back and forth between Jeremiah and God. And we see a few of these conversations throughout the book, which spans chapters 14 and 15. Jeremiah prays for mercy as he sees the drought. He sees people suffering and dying because of this drought. And he calls out to the Lord and he says, Lord, will you have mercy on your people? God states that he can give none and speaks of the evil, false prophets who have led the nation into deception and evil. Jeremiah is troubled. Asking God, have you utterly rejected your land then? And God responds in chapter 15 that there must be judgment. The sword to slay, the dog to tear, the fowl of heaven and the beast of the earth to devour and destroy. All of these things being things which God promised to protect Israel from if only they would obey him. Once again, elevating and highlighting the righteousness of God. God cannot just overlook sin. He cannot do it but god gives hope because of course he does jeremiah asks god again that he would avenge himself that he would avenge jeremiah in light of the wrongs that were done against him that as jeremiah had devoted himself to proclaiming the word of god even unto his hurt so too god would judge those who have wronged him and the extent of this judgment is taught in chapter 16 It will touch every part of society, all the way down to the children. But God tells Jeremiah that when he tells this to the people, when Jeremiah tells this to the people, it will cause the people not to repent, but rather to harden themselves all the more. Yet God again remembers mercy. He reminds the people of the restoration which will take place after judgment. Their suffering will be great, but there is hope with God. Let us remember that. There is hope With God. To this end, God calls for them in chapter 17 to hope in him and to make him their trust. That never has a man who has put his trust in God ever found God empty or lacking. This causes Jeremiah to break forth into a psalm of praise at the end of chapter 17. Chapters 18 and 19 take us down to a potter's house where God uses the imagery of a potter to teach some lessons. The nation is reminded that they, as a lump of clay, had been marred in the hand of the potter, so it was God's prerogative to make with with them a new lump. This message becomes a call to return unto the Lord. And to this message, the people respond in chapter 18, verse 18, this way, Come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest nor counsel from the wise, nor word from the prophet. Come and let us smite him with the tongue and let us not give heed to any of his words. In other words, Jeremiah gives this prophecy of repentance and of restoration and their response is, let's get rid of this guy. We'll just stick to the prophets, the priests, and the pastors who are telling us everything's going to be just fine. The ones that tickle our ears, we'll stick with them. Let's get rid of this guy that's talking judgment. They've purposed in their hearts to reject the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and so they assume the consequences of which he speaks. God, therefore, promises in chapter 19 that he would break the city for their sin. We now see the rejection of Jeremiah's message take a new turn. As the Bible tells us, the son of the priest in Israel puts Jeremiah in in the stocks. When he's released the next day, Jeremiah prophesies against this man, saying that the Lord had declared that he and his family would die in captivity. However, we also find that this instance brings Jeremiah to a very low point emotionally. So he says in chapter 20, verses 7 through 9, He says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Jeremiah writing to God here. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil because of the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. Some of my favorite verses in all of Jeremiah. Lord, he says, I've spoken in your name and the only result has been reproach and derision. I've been mocked. I've been scorned. I've been thrown in prison. I've been hated. All of these things have happened because I've spoken in your name. So he says, I determined to quit. I'm just going to stop speaking. I'm not going to say it anymore. I'm not going to talk about judgment. I'm not going to talk about anything. He says, but then then something happened. The... Torment of not speaking was worse than the torment of speaking. His word was in my bones as a fire. In my heart as as a burning fire shut up in my bones. That literally the passion to speak, the passion to deliver the word of God overcame him. And he had to deliver the message. Such is the heart of a minister of God. Chapters 21 and 22 continue with narrative. Men within the court seek the word of the Lord by Jeremiah. They actually go to Jeremiah, people from the court, to ask his advice about Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah tells them the truth. Babylon's going to conquer Jerusalem. Don't resist them. God tells them these things that they might obey and that they might live. But they're not happy. So they say thanks, but no thanks, Jeremiah. Thank you for your input. We're going to ignore you. And they move on. So Jeremiah goes down to the house of the king and he cries out, At the house of the king of judgment, they refuse to listen. God pronounces judgment upon the king, upon the evil leaders, upon the false prophets. Chapter 24, Jeremiah sees a vision related directly to the captivity of Jerusalem in the days of Jeconiah and Jehoiachin. Excuse me, Jeconiah, who is Jehoiachin. God shows Jeremiah two baskets of figs, one that is ripe and one that is effectively rotten. God says the deportation will contain both, ripe figs and rotten figs. That for the nation of God, God will actually, the ripe fig idea, he will use that time when they are in Babylon to strengthen them. And we do see that following their time in Babylon, Israel never struggles with the, idol- the, the pagan idolatry problem again. Now, they do struggle with idolizing the law. Right, They elevate the law to an idol. But they never, with the brief exception of a time in Nehemiah, where Nehemiah takes care of that, um, they never wholesale struggle with pagan idolatry ever again after Babylon. So that would be the ripe figs. But then you have the rotten figs. And the rotten figs are that those leaders who led the nation into such evil, the nation itself, the temple, it would all be destroyed. Those are the rotten figs. We end chapter 25... In the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim, 23 years after Jeremiah had begun in the 13th year of Josiah to prophesy, for 23 years then, by chapter 25, Jeremiah has been calling for obedience and repentance. For 23 years, Jeremiah has been ignored, scorned, persecuted, and mocked. That's a long time as a minister to see very little to no results. But the people reject him still and God, God's judgments remain. We find, and you might, you might understand why, why Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He had, a, he had a hard ministry. We find in chapter 26 a response to Jeremiah's proclamations by the priests and the prophets. Their response, however, is not humility as we would desire. Chapter 26, verse 11, they say, this man is worthy to die. Speaking of Jeremiah For he hath prophesied against the city Jeremiah says the city will be destroyed They say kill this guy Such is the blindness of their hearts That the declarations of the word of the Lord Sound to them as sedition And treason rather than obedience and reason And we'll find that with people Whose hearts are truly hard Even among those who know the word of God The truths of God's word Sound more like treason, sedition Evil than they sound Wisdom and good. Jeremiah is nearly slain on that day, but some righteous among the leaders step in and spare his life. So he continues to speak. Zedekiah is now king in Judah, and Jeremiah's message begins to be directed toward this, the final king, the final 11 years of Judah's history. God, through Jeremiah, exhorts the king to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, not to rebel. But there was a false prophet among them named Hananiah who subverted the message of God with a false message of hope that God would allow Babylon to be broken and that Israel would prevail. Jeremiah and Hananiah give opposing messages in the same time, it's almost like a, a prophet's duel after which God delivers a message directly to Hananiah. So Hananiah gives his message, Jeremiah gives his message. Hananiah actually kind of mocks Jeremiah within his retort. And then Jeremiah, instead of continuing with this back and forth, he says, God has a word for you now directly, Hananiah, and the word is this, in this same year you're going to die. And in that same year, Hananiah died. you think that would get some folks' attention. Indeed, it did not. In chapter 29, Jeremiah writes a letter to those who were captive in Babylon. Remember that the captivity of Babylon took three phases. There was one phase in 605. There was one phase in 597. The final phase was in 586. So Jeremiah is writing to those who are in already in Babylon captive. And his letter effectively says this. Get comfortable. You're going to be there a while. Don't listen to the prophets that tell you you're coming home soon. You're not coming home soon. However, it is here in chapter 29 that God gives a timetable for the captivity. It's not intended to be a sorrowful thing. When Jeremiah wrote to those in Babylon, he was not writing to discourage them. He was actually writing to encourage them. He was telling them to get comfortable, but he was also promising that there would be a day of restoration. The timetable is an implicit promise that they would be restored. So we read this in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon... I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. The captivity would be 70 years. But all that time, they should remember that God's thoughts toward them are yet thoughts of peace and not of evil. And indeed, it is the next chapters, chapters 30 through 33, that really form the climax of the book of Jeremiah. The promises of restoration and salvation are at their most powerful. God tells them in chapter 30, verse 10, that he would save them from afar, that Jacob will return. God tells them in chapter 31, verse 3, that he has loved them with an everlasting love that cannot, that indeed will not pass away. God reminds them that He has always been faithful to redeem, and He will continue still. So He says in chapter 31, verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. It's nested within these verses of hope that we find one of the most doctrinally important promises in all of the Old Testament, It's the promise of the very thing we observed this evening in remembrance. It's the promise of the new covenant. So we read in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, Although I was an husband to them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Hebrews 8 contrasts the new covenant with the law of Moses calling the new covenant a better promise. This is the promise of the new covenant which Jesus would reference on the night in which he was betrayed. When he took the cup and he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. This promise is the promise not only of the Messiah, but it's a promise of a new way, a new and living way. It's a promise that God would save his people from their sins. It's the promise that God would not just ask his people to be righteous, but then he would actually make his people righteous. It's the promise that God would do for them what they had failed to do for themselves. And the fulfillment of that promise would be rooted in the Messiah of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. And it is within that Messiah, it is through that Messiah that the Bible says all the world would be blessed. And so we have, have we not? In chapter 32, we find Jeremiah in prison again for his preaching. He buys a field in the days of hopelessness. He invests in the land in the days when the land is surely going to be ruined, destroyed. Why? To remind the people that they are coming home. He says this is a good investment, so he buys a field. Still in prison in chapter 33, the words of hope continue. God calls out the nation through Jeremiah, saying in chapter 33, verse 3, Call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. They're cast down, but they're not forsaken. They simply lack one thing, repentance. They refuse to return to the Lord. Chapter 34 leads us into the days of Nebuchadnezzar's final siege in Jerusalem. Jeremiah exhorts King Zedekiah to submit himself to the siege. He says, submit yourself so that people are not killed. It's going to happen one way or another. Submit so that people don't have to die. Of course, Zedekiah doesn't listen. So the city is thrown into deeper suffering still. In chapter 35, we find a people called the Rechabites. Following a man named Rechab, he's their father, They're loyal to him at all costs. And God uses this as a picture. Through Jeremiah, Jeremiah preaches and says, look at these people who are loyal to their leader. Regardless, he says, they listen, this is what I want you to be to me. God promises a blessing upon that people for their obedience. And he says, because you refuse to hear, because you refuse to act this way toward me, you will go into captivity. Chapter 36 leads us back to a time during the reign of Jehoiakim. We go back in time a little bit. When Jeremiah was writing the words of the Lord, this is the first time we have a record of him actually writing the words that we are now reading some 3,000 years later. The Bible tells us at the time he was imprisoned, like, you know, back then, so lots of prison for Jeremiah. And he wrote the words, and he had his fellow servant read them to the king. And the king listened to the words, and summarily told them to throw the scroll into the fire. And so he burned the words that the Lord had had Jeremiah write, And God commanded Jeremiah then in this day to write the words again, reminding us of one thing, that man can burn God's words all he wants. Man can ignore God's words all he wants. God's word will not be broken. God's word cannot be broken. Chapters 37 through 42 give historical narrative concerning the final days Of Jerusalem. Zedekiah attempts to get into a league with Egypt in order to defeat Babylon. Jeremiah says, Don't do this, this is going to go bad for you. They do it anyway. It fails. And this is the beginning of the end. Jeremiah goes through a bit of a whirlwind as he is imprisoned, released, questioned by the king. At the end of chapter 39, Jeremiah. Or excuse me, Jerusalem is overthrown. Jerusalem and most in Jerusalem are carried captive into Babylon. This is five eighty six BC. Jeremiah, however, is not one of the ones that's taken. He's one of the ones that is left in the land. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar did leave in the land the poorest and the the least important among them. Jeremiah was counted as one of those. He was a part of a refugee remnant who remained in the city under the the leadership of a man named Gedaliah. This man is then killed in a coup, and the man that led this coup was named Ishmael. Ishmael's not a name associated with good things in the scriptures. So the people devise a plan. They say, we are going to flee to Egypt. And Jeremiah, once again, speaks to this remnant through uh, the, the word of the Lord through Jeremiah in chapter 42 saying don't leave the land stay in the land God says if you stay in the land I'll take care of you so what do the people do? they leave right? this, th- this is the legacy of the people it doesn't matter if it's the king it doesn't matter if it's the refugees it doesn't matter if it's the priests or the prophets or the pastors they all, they, no, no one's listening to the Lord so they leave and not only do they leave but they take Jeremiah with them You're coming with us, Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is now down in Egypt with this group. And this group perverts themselves. They go after idols. They go after false gods, the gods of the land. In chapter 44, we find Jeremiah seeking to call the people back to obedience. The people's response in chapter 44, verses 16 and 17 is this. As for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord we will not hearken unto thee. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouths, to burn incense unto the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her, as we have done, we and our fathers, our king and our princes, in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem. For then had we plenty of victuals, and were well, and saw no evil. Remember back to when Jerusalem was there? We were worshiping the queen of heaven. You can read about that in Ezekiel. We were pouring out our drink offerings to her and things were going so well. So we're going to go back to her. They totally missed it, didn't they? They totally forgot the whole point of Jeremiah for the last 40 years of his life, telling them, return to the Lord, or this is going to happen. Complete disconnect. Chapter 45 is a message to Jeremiah's fellow servant Baruch back in the days of Jehoiakim. We go back in time again. Chapters 46 through 51 are prophecies against the nations. This is an important part of prophecy where God reminds us as he's kind of pummeling his own people here, right? That just because the other nations are not in view, that's not the scope of, of God's focus within these prophecies does not mean that God has ignored them. There's judgment upon them and great judgment as well because they have fully rejected the Lord all the way back to the beginning of their establishment. So we see these things in chapters 46 through 51. Prophecies against the nations. The majority of, the, the, uh, of, of those chapters, two full chapters, uh, the, the, the largest part by far is devoted to Babylon the nation whom God used to bring Israel into captivity, Jerusalem, excuse me, and Judah Judah into captivity, and and God's judgment on them will be very severe because though God used them, their wickedness still abounded. The book finishes in chapter 52 with some historical cleanup. Zedekiah dies. The temple is destroyed, and so we read in in verses 12 and 13, Now in the fifth month, In the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, which served the king of Babylon into Jerusalem, and burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and all the houses of the great men, burned he with fire. The temple is destroyed, the remnant is deported, Jehoiachin is restored to live out the rest of his days in Babylon in peace. And so ends our summary of the book of Jeremiah. Now obviously we covered a great deal of ground very quickly today. The intent is to give you an overview of what we are going to be studying for the next quite some time in the book. Many themes run throughout the Jeremiah, we've spoken of mercy, we've spoken of judgment, we've spoken of justice, we've spoken of long suffering, we've talked about Jeremiah, we've talked about his emotions. I'd just like to draw out two points this evening from this book sermon as we close. And I hope these points can become immediately helpful to you in your Christian lives. And then I hope that as we walk through the book more slowly and in detail, we also look for these themes. Observe them carefully as we study the book. Question number one, I ask you this. Can you obey the Lord and trust him with the rest? Can you obey the Lord and trust him with the rest? Consider the ministry of Jeremiah. Consider the nation of, his, of, of Judah here. We gain insight into the range of emotions which Jeremiah went through within the scope of his 40 to 50 year ministry. Passion and optimism at one point. Expectation that men will hear the word of the Lord and will respond. Sorrow when his ministry and mission field rejected the word of the Lord. Indignation when men treated God's word with disdain. When men treated him as God's servant with disdain simply because he was delivering the message of God. Weary discouragement, and even a determination at one point to quit. Rejoicing over God's righteousness, love, and mercy in the midst of the life that he was asked to lead. And perhaps you can relate a little bit to the prophet with all of his ups and his downs. A functional Christian is not a Christian who does not feel emotions. A functional Christian is not a Christian who doesn't have ups and downs. A functional Christian is one who knows that in the midst of these ranges of emotions that we have, there's a God who is bigger, who is still on the throne, and who is faithful. This has been the testimony of the followers of God since the beginning. So Job would say this in Job 23 verses 8-10 through Behold I go forward and he, that would be God, is not there and backward but I cannot perceive him on the left hand where he doth work but I cannot behold him he hideth himself on the right hand and I cannot see him but he knoweth the way that I take when he hath tried me I shall come forth as gold Job was not always feeling well as a matter of fact, all throughout the book of Job, we find him in pretty bad shape. But he says this. He says, I don't understand what God's doing, and I've looked for him, and I can't find him in this. But this one thing I know, that when he's finished his work with me, I'll be the better for it. Asaph. Excuse me, David next, then Asaph. David would write this in Psalm 27, verses 12 through 14. Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses have risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. I had fainted, unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. What about Asaph, the songwriter for the king in Psalm 77? He asks, Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in his anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. And I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy works and talk of thy doings. What about Isaiah? Isaiah who would write in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 7 and 8, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is as grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Or Habakkuk, who also had some emotional ups and downs, and writes at the end of his prophecy, in Habakkuk 3:17 through19, "Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall the fruit shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God, is my strength, and He will make my feet like hind's feet. And he will make me to walk upon mine high places. What about the Apostle Paul? We could go to many places for him. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 10, Paul writes, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. The legacy of the obedient unto the word of God is not a legacy of ease. It's not a legacy of those who have been able to somehow cut off the emotional part of them so that they don't feel pain, so that they don't feel anger, so that they don't feel sorrow. The legacy of the word of God is not that God has turned us into uh, robots who only feel one thing. The legacy of of, uh, of, of the followers of God is a legacy of faith in the midst of what we're going through. It's a legacy of confidence in victory, for indeed it is in 1 John 5 verse 4 where John writes, this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our faith. It's a legacy of those who believe in the faithful God who has promised, as it is written in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Can you obey the Lord and trust him with the rest? Can you do as God has asked you to do, even if doing as God has asked you to do is not easy? Can you stand for what God has asked you to stand for? Even when standing for what God has asked you to stand for might mean days of sorrow, might mean days of frustration, might mean days of confusion. Can you trust that God is in it? And say as Job said, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Second question. Can you see the mercy of God in the midst of necessary judgment? Never lose sight when you're reading prophecy of the mercy and hope that God places within it. We went through Jeremiah quite quickly, but where the Lord pronounced and executed judgments, this one thing we know, that where those judgments are, they are necessary. But where those judgments are necessary, it is because at some point along the line, the people have rejected God's mercy because it was there. We can know it. Jeremiah began calling the nation under repentance 40 years before the end. 40 years before the temple was destroyed. For generations previously, God had patiently, lovingly called the nation back to him. And this we know as well that God's judgments cannot annul even one of his promises. To this end, proclamations of judgment in Judah were fulfilled with promises of eventual restoration and salvation because that is what God has promised to the nation of Israel. But let us, as God's people today, as we see these promises of mercy and of restoration, we who are in Christ, who are kept by the power of God, even as we read in the Revelation, the promises to the overcomers, right? I've said every week that the promises to the overcomers, they're not threats they're, they're hopeful promises. They're not promises that, that, that you, you need to persevere in order to receive them. They're promises that if you are an overcomer, these are already for you. Don't let the promises of your overcoming, don't let those things cause you to push the limits of God's mercy. Don't, if I may put it in Paul's vernacular, continue in sin that grace may abound. Every now and then, perhaps more often than that, I'll witness one of my children poking his sister or his brother. Maybe, literally, sometimes just metaphorically, right? And if the sibling doesn't respond, the child pokes again and continues to agitate, almost as if they want to see how much the sibling can endure before the the grand eruption. Let us not treat God that way if... You push the limits of God's mercy and God gives a little bit. Count that what it is mercy. Don't keep pushing. Because at some point, mercy has to give way in our lives to chastening. Let's not walk the fence of that line, wondering how much we can get away with before the chastening rod of God falls upon us. I mentioned Romans 6, verse 1 already. Paul says in verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The Word of God calls us to examine ourselves, to judge ourselves so that we will not be judged. It was in the passage, indeed, having to do with the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11. Would to God that we would live squarely within the boundaries of God's grace and not be pushing the boundaries of God's mercy. Our time in Jeremiah is going to be very profitable. I'm excited about it. I I really enjoy this book. In it we'll learn much of the character of God. We'll learn much of His grace and His mercy. We'll learn much of His judgment, of His righteous judgments. We'll learn much as well, not just of the character of God, but we'll learn a lot about ourselves. When we talk about this idea where Jeremiah preached for 40 years and no one listened and the king didn't listen and the next king didn't listen and the next king didn't listen and the priests didn't listen and the prophets didn't listen and the pastors didn't listen and then when everything that he promised came to pass, the refugees didn't listen and they went down to Egypt and then when they got there, they said, oh, by the way, Jeremiah, just to let you know, we're still not going to listen. It's going to teach us some things about our own tendencies, our own propensities, things to look for, things to guard against. But let us in all of these things start with just these two questions to prepare ourselves for this series. Are we ready? Can we do this? Can we obey the Lord and trust him with the rest? And can we see the mercy of God in the midst of his necessary judgments?